When I volunteered for this mission, I never thought I'd end up playing straight man to a tin can. Todos bienvenidos a esta semana en Mormones. Gracias por estar aquí con nosotros. Hoy vamos a hablar de muchísimas cosas y estoy hablando en español porque también mi uh, presentador, presente, presentante, presentador que está conmigo, Jared también sabe hablar español. De hecho, él sabe, sabe traducir español. Sábado gigante. Bienvenidos a todos. Wow, yeah, seriously, as you started that out, my first thought was, is this Don Francisco? Is this Sábado Gigante? All about Sábado Gigante. It's the best show. I love that it's a show called Giant Saturday. Yeah. The perfect name for a program of that nature. Uh, anyway, from now I, now, I totally slipped on the word host. I forgot, is it presentador? Presentador? I'm really you're not pre- sure. You're a presenter. That's what, that's the because it comes from the British speak. They don't call people hosts in the UK. You're called a presenter when you, you present a program. I didn't know that. Well, now you do. Let's T-I-L see. that in the UK, you're a presenter, not a host. Any of them. That's neither here nor there. Everyone, thanks for taking the time to be with us this week. We hope you will, of course, uh, you know, contact us. You, you're listening to the show. If you have things, feedback, things to say, contact thisweekinmormons.com or go to our Facebook page. Leave comments there with this post. Uh, we'd like to know what you're thinking about the material we discuss. And of course, Jared Gillens is here. We're also on Twitter, I do believe. Yeah, in passing. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. So do you feel like you're a member of the Twitter stake, but you're only like a Sunday Mormon on the Twitter stake? In a way, I'm not as much on the Twitter with with the churchy stuff or with the uh, twim stuff as I have been. We're there, but I've only got time to manage so many social media channels. So for me, Facebook gets top priority. Makes sense. That's That's where I see most of the interaction, so... We get a lot on there. Uh, Instagram's good, too. We try to work on our Instagram page. Um, it depends, but we could do more. But so this, is how, this is how my heart sell, people. We could do more. Uh, what we do on social media could be better. I'm not going to lie to you. But you should follow it anyway. Like it, it's, it's marginally disappointing, but it's okay. Come along. It'd be great. It um, folks, uh, by the way, we are, I'm joining you now from the new nerve center of This Week in Mormons. Last week, I decried my contractor, and I will decry him until the day I die. But this week, I join you, all new, from my dedicated office studio. It is fabulous, and there are so much unputaway boxes in here that it's absorbing all of the echo that would otherwise be here, which is good for everyone involved. So if you're noticing a major difference in the quality of the show this week, it is because of that. I come to you from a basement in my home. I'm very excited. In South Northern Virginia. You could just, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, sure, fine. How, yeah, how I do mean, you, because I mean, you're, I think you're still, you're not, you're outside of the Beltway, but you're still, I would say, Northern Virginia because you're part of the greater DC metro area, I yes, think. Yes, yes, of course we're still in Northern Virginia. I don't. But you're like South Northern Virginia because you're I'm, almost to Fredericksburg. Okay, for one, I'm not almost to Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg <laughs> is without traffic, a half hour south of here. I that's can get almost. to where you. I can get to where you live in less time than that if there's no. Traffic. Okay, okay, that's um, fair. That's Alexa- fair. Alexandria is only 15 minutes away if there's no traffic. It's not a big deal. Um, what about Manassas Battlefield? How far is that? Uh, that would also depend on traffic. I've got to cross all of Manassas to get there, but mm. 25-ish minutes maybe. Okay, so yeah, you're not quite in the south. You're not in the south. No, 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 no. Definitely not in the south. Definitely in. Northern Virginia. I feel like every time you're on, we argue about the fact that you live inside the Beltway 
in Alexandria, God's country, and well, I live so far away. I'll confess it's because Kelsey and I, over the six years that we've been married and lived in this wonderful ward, we just have grown more and more embittered every time we make friends with somebody and that friend moves <laughs> to Occoquan or wherever, Centerville, places that are more affordable. Like, So we kind of have this- I, I would just like the record to show though, when we left the ward, it was not by choice. We were gerrymandered out of that thing. That's I mean, eventually true. we moved. Eventually we moved, but the initial parting of ways in the ward we shared together- was- You weren't just gerrymandered out of the ward. You were gerrymandered out of the stake. I was, and I was bitter about it for a long time. That was a, I had to learn some lessons from that experience. Genuinely. Thing is, though, if you look at the maps of before and after, they actually kind of reverse gerrymandered. Our ward was much more of an odd shape before they realigned that the boundaries, the and now we're uh, yes. pretty close to a square. So, you are pretty close to a square, and you also have like no affordable areas in your ward boundaries anymore. And <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, there are a couple of places that are semi-affordable still. So, folks, where I was living was on in this, you know, largely apartment-driven neck of the woods, not mm-hmm. low income or anything, but just like it was an easy place for younger families to all be living. And so we had a lot of those in our ward. They lobbed that off, and instead they incorporated most of Old Town Alexandria and all these posh neighborhoods, uh, which are great if you have people who can afford to live there. And I'm sure you still have some, but I have wondered about the viability of a ward when they take away, you know, the obvious places for younger families to be moving in, to be a life stream in yeah. a ward. But Tough. that being said, there are some areas uh, in the ward still that are in Old Town that have uh, some government-assisted living um, areas as well. I used to live right by that. Yes, I yeah. know them. I, so, I live right by those projects. Walked past them all the time. Yeah, so there still is a, a modicum of diversity in the ward. Well, well, good. I'm glad everyone is aware of this in-depth conversation we're having about the ward boundary situation in uh, Northern Virginia. Yes. We're doing very well. <laughs> Church is true everywhere, though, folks. It's good times. All right. Um, well, let's, maybe let's then move to something that is more relevant to our listeners. Um, well, this is real. I mean, folks, you've all been there. You've been in a ward where the boundaries have changed. Tell us about your experiences. Send us an email. Otherwise... What should we move to this week? So many things have happened. I'm just going to go off with my top story this week, everybody. Now, we sort of teased this. We fell into some information about this a few weeks ago, that the church is announcing one new handbook. So for those unfamiliar, uh, there are currently two handbooks in the church. They date from 20, the most recent ones are from 2010. They've updated them online, but... Uh, There's Handbook 1, which is a handbook specifically for stake presidents and bishops and other people related to them. And there's Handbook 2 for everybody else. Now, if you are a a lay member of the church, you have access to Handbook 2 in the Gospel Library app, for example, or if you look online or anything else, right? Uh, Because of the wonderful uh, advent of the LDS account, the church account, they can grant and restrict access to various materials based on what you're calling is on a, on a database table that they use. And so Handbook 1, for example, uh, while there were physical copies before, the digital one, depending on your calling, will also just show up in something like Tools or LCR. Um, so that's been restricted, and there, because of it being restricted, it has always been a little bit mysterious. People have wondered, what is in Handbook 1? The church has at times even, pr- I believe there was one time they prosecuted a website for hosting a PDF of it, if I recall. Interesting. Uh, um, Very much on the, you know, I mean, the strict legal grounds of saying this is 
like this is our property. You don't have the right to distribute this, these materials. Period. Like end of story. Right. I mean, you, then that goes in the weeds. Like technically, the church is also the only one that owns the copyright on the Book of Mormon, and you can't just go print a copy of it yourself too and host that somewhere or what have you. So, anyways. Handbook One has always had a bit of mystery around it. I've read through it. I have access to Handbook One currently. There's nothing crazy in there, but it does get into more of the the thick of it on things like disciplinary councils, uh, abusive situations, how to and just counseling in general, handling finances, and then there's all the fun stuff. How it like dissuades vasectomies. How it says that hypnotism for entertainment purposes is not good. Uh, I believe because it is denying you of your agency, just like, you know, getting drunk might, for example. Yeah, I remember uh, there's, there's a lot of fun little tidbits in there. The first time I read through it, I was kind of cracking up at some of the stuff in the back. I was like, oh man, they would not have approved of my high school grad night celebration then because we hypnotized like crazy. Yeah, we had awesome. one. Maybe that was that a thing of like the late 90s? Like was it, it was, was yeah. It yeah, or, I think uh, hypnotists. High school a, parties a to have moment. hypnotists, yeah. They had a good Y2K moment there, yeah. So, uh Anyway, so that's handbook one. Then handbook two has a lot of the stuff you've all seen. You know, how do you how do you do ward council? How do various uh, organizations, formerly auxiliaries, work? What's all the work we do? Those have been around for a while. So the church has announced instead it's going to combine them into one, and it's going to be available to everybody. We first learned of this a few weeks ago when the wonderful elder Peter M. Johnson was down here in my stake conducting leadership training, and he offhandedly just said, by the way, there's going to be like just one handbook. That's going to come out in the quarter, first quarter of this year. And I was like, well, that's news. Good to hear. I don't remember how it even came up, but I thought that was interesting. And then here we are about three weeks later, and uh, we, it's official. So um, the new handbook is officially called General Handbook, Serving in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It will be digital only, which is smart. Um, yeah. Because, well, for one, obviously we have the whole come follow me racism debacle that we've been following for a couple of weeks, you know, right. that that mess with the printed version. And then the church also stopped printing the other handbooks a while ago. They sent out a letter uh, to Bishop Briggs and just said, stop referencing this book and stop using it. Only use the digital one because we're only going to update that from here on out. So it would make sense that the new version just won't be printed at all. I, I completely understand with that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, good stuff here. I do find Elder Christofferson's quote interesting. He says yes. the new handbook is part yeah. of the ongoing restoration of the gospel. I mean, I get it, but I easily read a line like that and say the handbook is part of the ongoing restoration. Okay, so that, I, I agree, is kind of an odd statement, but I think the rest of the statement is still like yeah. interesting. So we'll read the rest going. of it. No, you, you go on. Okay. So this restoration has been and will continue to be a process of learning how to minister as Jesus would to a richly diverse world. We pray this new handbook will help church leaders use their God-given gifts to continue to bless lives in their ministry. We know there is room in the church for everyone. And that, to me, is like kind of the key line that makes me raise my eyebrow in 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 very sincere interest. Like, what does that mean? That that sounds a little cryptic, but I mean, he references a, a richly diverse world. But yeah, so what is it? What is he saying specifically when he says generally that we know there is room in this church for everyone? And we don't know exactly, you know. I, I wonder, uh, the interesting thing too is they've said that um, they're going to be updating a lot of the content. Roughly 80% of the content from the current handbooks is going to be incorporated into the new handbooks. That means we'll have 20% all new stuff. But even that 80% needs to be uh, reordered, reorganized in a different way. And offhand, actually, only about nine chapters are, are have been done that way. So I guess we're going to get a digital handbook that has nine 
fresh chapters and then we're just going to have the old content sitting there until they make their way through it. Well, another thing I'm curious about, and I know that this is your word choice from the post that you put up on the, on the blog, um, it says some, that the nine chapters have been updated to reflect the new tone and approach. Now, are those official terms that there's a new tone and approach from the handbook or is that something that you thought? I would be more than happy to find this to make sure here. Uh, yes, that's actually, I did not quote that because I felt like it wasn't a quotable term. That is the actual terminology used in the uh, newsroom release. The nine, they've been updated at this point to reflect the new tone and approach. Okay, so again, that's very interesting to me. Considering this idea of we're, we're, appro- we're trying to consider a, and minister to a richly diverse world, we're trying to make sure that there, it's clear that there's room for everybody in the church and that there's a new tone and approach to how we administer uh, not minister, but administer the church. Uh, yeah. All of that is like making me want to know like what, what's in here, what's different, what's new. And we'll find out. I believe it's only going to be, we're like, what, two weeks away? Just about? February yeah. 19th is when it's going to happen. And they're going to also have a whole newsroom article explaining some of the additions. I also think it's very interesting. It's going to be available to everyone. I don't think Handbook One was, I mean, like crazy out of bounds to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I understood the sensitivities of just not sharing it widely, so I am curious where they're going to draw the line. I mean, if this is the one handbook, it's going to unless they develop some special handbook that's not called. What well, they could get away with is saying here is general handbook serving in the church, and they still develop some new thing that's called like bishop's handbook. Right, and I've and seen some, some people speculating about that, or or you know maybe this is handbook, and then there are also. Here are several letters to bishops, or you know, yeah, or, to, or you know, like supplemental things. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm kind of curious how they're going to do that. I'm not quite sure, but it'll be fun to see. I think it's good to have a new handbook, fresh content. Even though it's going to take them like two years to go through all the spots, which is that honestly is very weird. And this is also only going to be in English at first. Which Jared, correct me if I'm wrong, but I take this to mean that like the English speaking part of the church is going to be using different governing documents from the rest of the church then. I guess twenty percent of it, anyway. If yeah, at least of for it a is while. still not really changing fundamentally, but that is that is interesting, and uh, I wonder if they'll still kind of distribute that English one to all over the world, just so that it's there in case local leaders. Oh, it happened. Well, it would be like uh, like it would be like when preach my gospel came out. It was only in English for a while, and even in other language speaking missions, they gave them English versions and like just to kind of like work with this. Yeah, and I guess anybody figure. could. I mean, it wouldn't have to be quote unquote distributed since it's not paper, I guess, you know, anybody could just switch their app to English and download the English copy of it to see, you know, if they, if they have that capability. So yeah, I guess that, but that is interesting, isn't it? That there will be a new tone and approach that hasn't been broached in Portuguese. Yeah. And it makes me wonder what they will, what would be changed then? It's like, I mean, are they going to change the definition of apostasy in the English version one, but not in the others, you know, stuff. I don't think like, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, but I, I wonder if we'll have any weird uh, breaks right. basically in terms of what's, uh, what guidance we receive in one document, but not in the other, but we'll find out in two weeks. So along those lines, speaking of policies, one of the t- hot topic policies that's been popping up in the news um, unfortunately, multiple times over the last few weeks, is the subject of abuse and what to do when abuse is reported to a bishop in in the setting of of confession, in the setting of you know trying to reconcile sins and and work you know counsel to a better life. And so I I'm sure I, I I'm not up on every single one of my uh, recent Twim episodes, but I'm sure a few weeks ago you guys 
talked about the uh, woman who is suing the church because her husband confessed abuse to the bishop and then the bishop reported yes, him to yes, authorities. Did, yeah. So that's a, that's a case where good bishop understands <laughs> that this is horrible. It needs to stop and that the authorities need to know this. And he reports in the news uh, this week, there was a story uh, and this is a, a website that I was not familiar with before preparing for this episode, but there's a, a website called Truth and Transparency. Uh, and they, they published an article where uh, they talked about uh, a, a man who recently was convicted of abuse of his two young daughters over the course of several years. And the, one of the tragic parts of the story, the, the entire thing is horribly tragic, but one of the tragic parts is that back in 2010 or 2011, he actually did confess this to a bishop. And that according to sources, and of course, I, I try to take these things with a grain of salt because you know there's always multiple sides to a story. But according to sources, the bishop not only didn't turn him in, but supposedly received instruction from higher up not to turn the, him in because he lived in Arizona and local Arizona laws don't require clergy to report such abuses to the law. And again, supposedly, as far as this article reported, uh, the policy of the church is to comply with local laws. So I don't know. So going back to our discussion of like a yeah. new handbook, are we going to see a much firmer approach to reporting abuse? I would, I would going to editorialize and say, I hope so. I, I don't think there's ever an excuse regardless of what the local laws in Arizona or anywhere else are, there's never an excuse to leave young people, old people, any people in a horribly dangerous situation um, for the sake of, Hey, we're trying to help this guy reconcile. And, you know, right. anyway, I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, yeah, I, mean, I would love to see yeah. the church take a no tolerance approach to this and say, I don't always, uh, always report abuse to the law because there are people whose safety we are concerned with. Yeah, I'm with you too. I mean, I, I it frustrates me that the baseline seems to be basically like just comply with like the minimum requirements in the state you're in versus just guys report the abuse. Like and again, and so and they 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 but it's, um, it depends. It depends. In that article they made it clear that the the church spokesman did not comment specifically on this case, nor did the law firm that represents the church in such cases or gives legal advice to bishops. They didn't specifically comment. So. We, we're getting it from one side that that's the exactly. legal advice that was given. But and so I hope that's not true. I hope that there's more to the story uh, and that there are, that, that part of it is incorrect because I just, yeah, I can't imagine that it would ever be a good idea to anybody to give that kind of advice to, Oh yeah, just, just, just let them, let them, let them keep going. Let them work it out. Yeah. Amen. Anyway, uh, so sorry to, Go to go straight to that downer. Maybe we need to pick things up. Don't a bit. be, don't be, don't be sorry. We we save all the fluff for the end. That's where <laughs> the fun is. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's a bit of interest according to a study, a new poll. Okay, this poll was uh, commissioned by the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, about another issue we've talked about a lot lately, especially in light of the big hundred billion dollar elephant in the room. Uh, is that a majority of Utahns want to require churches to disclose their finances, asterisk. However, a minority, about a third of of self-proclaimed, self-identified active Latter-day Saints, share that view. So that's very interesting to me just because of the numbers of Utah. Utah is roughly two-thirds LDS, I think, at this point. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not to say who's active, who's not. But that would mean that of that subset of 60-odd percent of Utah— 
roughly we say half is typically active or so, which would mean 30 something percent of Utah is active Latter-day Saint. But they're saying that that basically means a smaller portion of that subgroup is actually even even, uh, wants that to be disclosed. So it's a, it's understandable. I think we're very sensitive about this. I don't think I made sense right there either, but I think, um, I was following. Okay. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's a minority of the minority of that, that even wants the church to disclose finances. I think we're cagey and a bit touchy about that, but the poll's pretty interesting. I mean, you've got, yeah, 54% of Utahns support that idea of having tax exempt religious organizations publicly report their finances. Uh, most tax-exempt organizations do need to publicly report finances. That's part of the deal. But churches have always had a little separate carve-out for them because of the intrinsic value they give to the community. Is really the way the government's always looked at it. The churches contribute in a lot of intangible ways, and it would be too burdensome to force them to also disclose their finances, even if they get a tax break uh, at a federal level. So I think that's interesting, and I am curious why— self-proclaimed active Latter-day Saints are just not into the idea. I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like you said, there's this caginess and sensitivity that, uh, and I think it also relates to another thing that's been buzzing around with this, uh, that we've been, our leaders have been talking a lot about uh, this idea of religious freedom. And I think a lot of people, when they hear, hey, the church should be more transparent and open about their finances, the uh, one place that a lot of conservative members' minds go to is, oh no, does that mean more government control, more government oversight of church finances? And we don't want that, you know? So I, I think I understand. It, to me, that's the point of view that I can kind of wrap my head around. The other side of it, though, is like, I don't know. I, I, I think that as a general rule, more transparency is a good thing. Like, I think it's good for us to know, hey, this is how we're using tithing dollars. This is how church finances work. This is how we make decisions. And we do get a little bit of that, um, especially on the ward level. Many bishops are very open about the budgeting process, at least uh, in wards that I've been in. But um, I don't know. I, I, I would, I would, I for one would love to see a little bit more transparency to understand a little bit more. This is how we prayerfully allocate sacred, sacred donated funds. And this is uh, how we are accountable, you know, and we're, we don't even have an, you know, I'm sure you remember, it wasn't that long ago that in general conference, we'd always get a report from the auditor who would, you know, affirm that the church books were all in order and everything looked good. And we haven't had that for a few years now. And I, and I kind of missed that. I liked hearing at least that small bit of, um, reporting accountability to the membership of the church to say, Hey, we are, doing all right <laughs> you know so i like that it, reassurance it, it's funny that the uh the whistleblower thing came out in one of the, it's only been like three conferences tops mm-hmm. since they stopped doing all that stuff and stopped doing the, the uh, statistical report at the same right. time which which bums me out i don't know i mean it's fun to find it online it makes i sense, liked it but i liked hearing about it uh, i do think that maybe I mean, I'm guessing a lot of the reason that like very active Latter-day Saints are not in favor of this is, you know, they're the ones most likely to be full tithe payers. I think that means they're the most likely to be trusting. And that's where the interesting line shows up. Because I think you and I are active in the church. And I think we trust church leadership to be responsible with the Lord's money, you know, for our part that we've donated and for whatever other mm-hmm. monies we have, you know, wherever they come from. But I think there's another level where people just, you know, don't, you know, you don't question the brother. And we talked about, we talked about inerrancy last week on the show. Like you don't question these things. They have it under control. Why would you question it? So of course I don't want more transparency uh, in that regard. And 
also on the other side, the other part of that is I think the very active LDS community was not as affected by the whole whistleblower story. I think a lot of people in those situations just said, yeah, of course we got a bunch of money. Great. Like we've done a good job with our money and we have a lot of it. Good deal. And they didn't see any, they didn't see any trouble there, even though the issue wasn't whether or not we have money. It was more about how we went about obtaining it and spending it and whether we violated tax law to get there. Um, but I could see that being sort of why active Latter-day Saints don't want to disclose. And just They just feel like everything is good and why rock the boat? Right. But then again, I, I don't know. I, I Like I said, I think as a general rule, I, I just always think – I remember somebody telling me, uh, you know, the, the, the old adage, uh, the best disinfectant is sunlight, meaning that, you know, if things are open in the air, the things are less likely to get rotten. And again, and I, I am a faithful, believing member. I'm active. I, I do have a level of trust in our leadership and, you know, and, and also a belief that the Lord is uh, at the wheel um, on a higher level. But that does not preclude bad things happening or um, as we're warned in Doctrine and Covenants 121, right, that uh, there are people who do re- exercise unrighteous dominion. And that, you know, if, if the Lord felt strongly enough about that to reveal to Joseph Smith by revelation that this is something to look out for. I think it's something that we have to continue to look out for and not to make the assumption that everyone at every level of leadership in the church is beyond reproach as far as corruption or misuse of funds or anything like that may go. So I, I think um, having more transparency, my argument again would be that uh, in in the interest of what we've learned from Doctrine and Covenants 121, we can help prevent that sort of unrighteous dominion by saying, hey, look, this is what's happening we are all aware of it. And if anything bad does happen, we're much quicker to be able to point it out and correct it. There you go. Amen, brother. Amen. Amen. I'm going to throw another, uh, another quick one at you here. Um, this is mostly, I'm asking the twim, the twim nation for some help. Uh, I don't understand Dan Peterson's blog on Pathios. I just don't (laughs) understand what he gets at half the time. Uh, if you don't know Daniel Peterson, he is a, a famed um, Latter-day Saint apologist. He's been deep in Mormon studies his whole career. I believe, I don't know if he's, does he still teach at BYU? He has taught at BYU. I'm not sure if he's I, still in faculty. I don't know if he's still a religion professor there or not. Anyway, he's a, he's a notable name in the field. Pathios, a great site on for religious blogging, but I don't understand his column. Like, what is the, here is one recently this past week called Martin Harris on the witness stand in Lyons, New York. And he's, he just like, it's like a transcript of what happened with, but it's not even a full transcript. Apparently, according to the account, the transcript was torn up and thrown out by the judge. So we are getting Lucy Max Smith's secondhand relating of the transcript of what happened at court and of what Martin Harris reportedly testified from the stand. So I think the main thing is that Daniel Peterson has this knack for not providing any context for what he's, what cases he's laying out. He'll just say, here's some notes from this and then just have some quotes and then move on. And I'm like, where the, huh? But what's interesting is- about that is then you contrast that with like his work at Book of Mormon Central. And obviously he's not writing everything at Book of Mormon Central, but he's the man behind the site who's kind of running things. And that, um, and you could, you know, make your arguments about article by article about, you know, how relevant or trust or whatever, you know, that there, I think there, not all things on Book of Mormon Central are created equal, but still, they at least all have context. They all have, make a clear argument. They all have a 
didactic purpose that's discernible. Uh, whereas, yeah, Pathios, Daniel Peters, Peterson's Pathios, it's not as clear. So why the disparity between the clarity and purpose at Book of Mormon Central and the confusion and aimlessness of his Pathios blog? Yeah, yeah. Inquiring minds want to know. Another couple of things here. Uh, you know, Al Caraway Fox, the tattooed Mormon. Someone She's not um, just the tattooed Mormon, according to her book. Well, I would hope not. Uh, and I've, I've spoken about this before. I think it's, she has an interesting story because I think she can teach us a lot about the way we judge people based on her experience coming into the church. Mm-hmm. And I also think at the same time, it's incredibly, it's just damning for us that like we've we made it like this novelty of, oh, it's this tattooed Mormon. She has something valuable to say, but she has tattoos, you know? Um, so I think she's done a lot of good. Anyway, she spoke to hundreds of people at BYU, hundreds of them. Hey, hey, just- according to the article, they had to move the event from the assembly hall at the JSB, the Joe Smith building, yeah, all the way over to uh, the Wilk so that she could, it was the varsity theater, was it? So that, or no, wherever it was in the ballroom, it was in, in the ballroom, ballroom, yeah. So that she, because there was too many, there were too many people to fit in the original location. So, That's hey, true. it That's went from about, hundreds about, to yeah. almost thousands, six, like 1600 people yeah. showed up to, to listen to Al. I don't know what she talked about. Um, I'm sure it was just good things like don't feel bad about yourself and you know, like, you know, don't be lonely and be happy. Uh, but I want to. We're just going to uh, juxtapose this with mm-hmm. the fact that one emeritus Latter-day Saint General Authority, Larry Echohawk, also a former member of the Obama administration, uh, spoke at the 157th Bear River Massacre Memorial near Preston, Idaho, and only about 500 people showed up. You guys, I'm not dissing Al Caraway, but here you have Larry Echohawk in admittedly a less convenient location pulling in a third of the people i do wonder what the constraints of that location were like you said it was probably it was certainly well knowing preston idaho it's a bit remote but not only that but i wonder you know based on how much room there was for people to stand uh how good the speaker sound system was or if he if if he even had one did he just have to speak really loudly you know what i mean it might not have been conducive to a a crowd of 1600 or more okay listen here apologist it's fine (laughs) i am just condemning the people for loving who is al caro has she been set apart or ordained as anything No, 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 no 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 larry echo hawk Formerly ran the Bureau of Indian Affairs and was a, le- a general authority. I feel like he is a, a more worthy speaker. And- I, I'm not disagreeing with you. And especially since he was speaking on the anniversary of a terrible Native American massacre perpetrated by our federal government and, you know, and, and something that's you know, adjacent, if not a part of Latter-day Saint history. You know, it it definitely feels like a more momentous and somber and important occasion for people to pay attention yeah. to. Yeah, uh, I, I'm going to out us both here. Both of us, before we started recording, we're, we're confessing that we don't know much about the Bear River Massacre. You're, you're showing the cards. <laughs> My point is, though, that, well, I think we should. And not only should you and I know about this, but probably all of us should. So maybe uh, more people should be accommodated and made available to attend things like what other or former elder. I mean, Echo it would Hawk. probably, yeah, it would probably be a good thing. Sure. Yeah. Fine. Sure. Fine. Or did we just want to have a diatribe against Al, Al Caraway and how she's inferior to Larry Echo Hawk? 
Well, I mean, I think that's just that's just axiomatic, of course. We love you, Al. We love your tattoos. We love that you're in the church. We love all of the tattoos. Just every every single one of the tattoos that, that we're aware of. You to us. Whatever. <laughs> no love for Larry. I I love Larry. I think he's great. He's a great speaker. Uh, I've really enjoyed things he has to say, and I think he did some important work in the Obama administration. So. Uh, well, speaking anyway, of, uh, I, I speaking of being able to accommodate hit, hit people it. at um, at occasions where there are speakers, uh, let's talk about nursing moms at the BYU Women's Conference. Oh, okay. This has also been sort of a fiery topic, at least for the last couple of days, as I have witnessed it on the Twitters. People are all, all on Twitter about this topic. See what I did there. Uh, so apparently, BYU has announced that nursing mothers and their babies cannot be accommodated at the upcoming women's conference that is held annually at BYU. And a lot of people understandably are up in arms. They're, a lot of people are talking about this as a discriminatory policy, which I can totally see. I can understand that. This isn't you. Is this new though? I mean, is this a new rule? It is relatively new. So there has always been a policy against bringing children. Like it has always been clear that children are not to, uh, can't be accommodated, which is understandable. You know, women's conference is for sitting down and listening to speakers. And when you have like a toddler or a five or six year old, that's not a a person who's going to be do well in that environment. So that's fair. No children involved uh, are allowed, but uh, the, the, to specify to get, to get it down to the degree and specify that nursing uh, babies who are being nursed can't be accommodated. That's new. That that's a new level of specificity that that didn't exist before. So, I have some thoughts. But what are your thoughts, Jeff? <laughs> is well, this, this is, is this exactly, discriminatory? Is well, this, this is exactly the kind of thing that I uh, the reactionary side of me wants to jump out and be like, "This is messed up, man." What is this? Like, are we all about families or not? It's a nursing baby. It's not some kid who's going to run around and cause trouble. It's a nursing child. Right. And you are a mother. And the church preaches that, that being a mother is the most sacred thing you can do. You are this vessel for life. Right. And you should embrace that. And how dare we tear that down at some women's conference because kids are bad. Uh, at the same time, I understand. The, I've, you know, I... I, that's my gut impulse, but I understand at the same time that it's complicated bringing kids there, and it's complicated for those attending to deal with other children being around. Yeah, and I, 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 when I first read about this, I had the same reaction as you. I was like, what? This doesn't make sense. We're a family-oriented church. We want young mothers to be at events like this because they need support and love just like everyone else does, and maybe it's difficult. Maybe they're going through postpartum depression or whatever else. Like, why would we prevent women with nursing babies from coming here? But as I, I read through a lot of similar responses, uh, but I also read several responses where people, uh, women especially, like most of these responses I saw came from women, that uh, they were taking a more practical view of it, I, or, or not practical. I don't want to dismiss the other viewpoint as not practical, but uh, I guess a legit from a logistical standpoint, they're saying it's getting it's such a popular conference and it's so highly and well attended that it's becoming less and less conducive to a place where not only would you have, I mean, it's not the idea we don't want you sitting in the audience nursing a baby. It's the I think the idea is. You've got this baby. It's going to need to be changed. It's going to need to be fed. It's going to be need to have be taken somewhere to cry when it needs to cry, etc. And that 
it's just logistically much more challenging than it used to be to accommodate that. Right. And, uh, you know, one person pointed out, you know, they actually convert all of the public restrooms on campus, uh, all of the men's restroom for that week or for however many days the conference uh, takes place. All the male restrooms are converted to be women's restrooms. Okay, define that. I mean, what does that mean? They take out all the urinals? No, they just they just put a sign on the door and say, "Hey, for the next three days, this is a women's restroom." Oh, sure, gender neutral everything. <laughs> this country used to be great. Come on, now the point the point was that uh, they just need the stalls. They need the stalls because there's that many women. Yeah, and you know, I mean, on a, on a, any given day, it was so funny. Where where was I recently? Oh, I was. Uh, we were up in New York a couple weekends ago, and uh, we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we stopped to take a bathroom break and uh, Kelsey, my wife, stood in line to get, to get into the women's bathroom at the Met. And, you know, there wasn't like a big event or anything going on. It was just a normal day at the Met, a weekday. Yeah. And so she gets in line to uh, to go use the bathroom and I walk straight into the men's bathroom, do my business, wash my hands, come out. And she hadn't, she had almost gotten to the actual door of the restroom by the time I was finished. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think the idea is, you know, on on a good day at BYU, there's a line for women to use the restroom. At women's conference, there's a line to use men and women's restrooms, even though they've doubled, you know, more or less doubled the capacity. So again, I say, so some people are arguing this isn't a discriminatory, this isn't intended to punish or exclude any class of women or mothers, but it's more of a, hey, we just don't know how we're going to accommodate and keep, make sure we have a safe and healthy space for babies of this age. It, it does, uh, the article does go on to explain though that many, this is anecdotal, but many women said as far, you know, as recently as 2010-ish, they remember going to the conference and taking their children and like nursing children and not having any issue with it. Yeah. Uh, B- B- Carrie Jenkins, a BYU spokesperson said that the issue is that at a sporting event, because they do this in the Marriott Center mm-hmm. a lot of the time, that at a sporting event, you got kids, it's like, okay, it's loud, kids can wiggle, you know, it's a sporting event. But here, everyone's expected to sit quietly and right. listen and not have children ruining the spirit. <laughs> ruining the spirit. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's, that is something to consider. Another perspective I saw was that somebody said, well, if it's getting too crowded to accommodate, why don't you limit the attendance? And to say, okay, well, if it's if we can't even have a, a baby ch- have a place for it to change its diaper when it needs it, let's just uh, cut down the attendance and allow fewer attendees. And again, the the other side that came back to that was, well, they already do that. There's already a limited number of tickets yeah. that they hand out. So do you limit it more so that we can have babies there? Or do we limit it less so that we can have more women there, just not women who have the babies? And so, I, I mean, there's going to be trade-offs either way. And I, I do sympathize with nursing mothers. I, I sympathize with all mothers. Uh, I think they have their work cut out for them no matter what the circumstances. So, I can understand why this would be a really hard announcement to receive, if, especially if you were looking forward to some sort of camaraderie. I have a, an aunt and and her, she and her daughters every year go together to a um, women's conference. Oh, wow. And for several of those years, some of those cousins had little babies that they were nursing. And so I could see that being a really big blow to them. And yeah, I would hate to tell yeah, ha- yeah. tell any woman like, sorry, not this year. You can't come. Yeah, it's messed up. Messed up, man. We're Okay, I'm back where we started. This is messed up. <laughs> I need to change this. Yeah, it's a complicated messed up, but yeah, it's 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 difficult. Okay, a uh, quick mention here that just came out. So uh, we know that missionaries sometimes are pulled from countries temporarily, sometimes permanently, unfortunately. 
for various reasons. I feel like the most of the time it's due to civil or political unrest or a natural disaster. Um, but oftentimes we see like, like in Bolivia, you know, we saw just within the past four months or so because of major unrest there, political issues when the Morales regime fell or when Evo Morales could not clinch his uh, dubiously gained fourth term in office. But um, the uh, North American missionaries were pulled out for their own safety. Uh, of course, we've seen restrictions in Russia as well. Ta- ta- I said Tambien right there. I just threw that in there. Tambien. So now in Liberia, the West African nation situated there, right there on the Gulf of Guinea, right between Cote d'Ivoire and Sierra Leone. Uh, they're not pulling all of the missionaries from the country. However, uh, the reasons here are economic because of a deteriorating economic situation in the country and a lack of resources, like supplies, like sundries, like the stuff you need. Uh, they are just thinning out the field a little bit. So, for example, over about the next week, 23 young missionaries, they say, so this, they're specific, this means young missionaries, not any uh, senior couples that are sort of nearing the end of their missions are just going to be sent home early. Uh, they've had eight other missionaries preparing to come home who are just going to be temporarily reassigned to another mission. So that leaves 99 missionaries in the uh, Liberia Monrovia mission who have adequate supplies moving forward. I know one issue, Liberia's had a major fuel mm-hmm. shortage, like the fuel reserves in the country are apparently depleted or were stolen or something along those lines. So there are issues there. It's it, I'm not celebrating this by any means, but I, it is an interesting case in that you don't usually see it's this like, Hey, there aren't the economic resources available in the country. And I know to support this certain number of missionaries. So we're going to reduce the number to a supportable level until things calm down. And then we'll bring it back up. I wonder too. I mean, and I'm sure this has been considered at higher levels, but I, I was wondering about, um, if the church has also at the same time, they're reducing missionaries to, you know, to a realistic number, whether that's to reduce the burden on the infrastructure or whether that's just to, uh, make sure that the, all of the missionaries we have can be provided for uh, for their needs. But I, has there also been efforts from the church uh, humanitarian aid department to help alleviate the situation there? I, I'm guessing yes. I haven't seen anything, but I'm sure yes. Yeah. So I wonder, I, yeah, I kind of just wonder how those things balance out. I, and I wonder if maybe part that's part of how a decision like this is made. Maybe people at the humanitarian aid uh, welfare side of the church, you know, kind of report back and say, hey, it's really bad and it's going to be a while before it gets better. And then the missionary department says, well, if that's the case, then maybe we should pull some people out. I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of there's interlocking a lot. gears here that yeah. a lot of interesting things that go on behind the scenes that we never hear about. Now, one thing did come to mind for to me. We wrote this article on our website. I thought about the Doctrine and Covenants when there was the old mandate to, you know, thou shalt not take no purse nor scrip. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that was a different era and mm-hmm. that was northeastern United States. But it is interesting to me that we're sort of, that's not a thing anymore. We're not no. saying like, well, missionaries have some faith and you will, and the people will care for you, right? right? We just don't do that anymore, I guess. It just says, no, if the situation is not such that our missionaries can be comfortable and safe, we're just going to uh, get them out of there for a bit and let that be that. Yeah. So basically, where is their faith? All of you. It's Perfect. just a testament to, you know, as things change, as the situation in the world changes, uh, sometimes the Lord changes the way he uh, has us work with the world. So I don't know, man. I'm slowly going to become one of these people who thinks that Brigham wasn't the proper successor to Joseph. This is clearly what's <laughs> happening. Hey, hey, people heard him speak in Joseph's voice. Who are you to question his authority? Uh, Sidney Rigdon. 
Oh, you're you're on, you're a are, are you are you going to be a become a bicker tonight? Perhaps who doesn't love the bicker tonight? I think right? they're super interesting. We could talk. We could, we should have an episode about the bicker nights so we can all like know them better, know our neighbors better. Anyway, and by neighbors we mean people that are largely in Pittsburgh. But yes, neighbors. Uh, it's not too far from me. From you, maybe it's kind of far down, down where you are. It's so far down where I am, even down <laughs> yeah. here in the south. But for you, yes, exactly. All right, Jeff, I'm really tired of dancing around this issue. I think we really need to address the hard-hitting and central news of Mormondom, Mormondom that happened in the last week. And that is the fact that Mitt Romney, somehow, some way, smuggled a bottle of BYU creamery chocolate milk onto the Senate floor during the impeachment trial. There are so many questions so, so, so for those of you who are not aware, there is a decades old, if, if not centuries old rule in the Senate that during such proceedings, the only beverages allowed are water and milk. Yes. And a lot yes. of senators have been complaining because, you know, these things go on for a long time. That means they can't drink coffee. That means they can't drink Coke or whatever they use yeah, to uh, yeah. keep their energy up. Uh, and so, yeah, these, all these people have been forced to drink either water or milk. Uh, and so Romney was photo- photographed with a bottle of BYU Creamery chocolate milk. And he got in trouble because it was in a bottle and apparently no bottles are allowed. So uh, he stepped out to avoid controversy. He stepped out to the cloakroom, poured his bottle of milk into a glass and returned to the room where apparently it was allowed. I guess chocolate milk is considered milk under these Senate rules. I got to tell you, this cloakroom they've had during the impeachment is like a speakeasy. I've read so much about the <laughs> the cloakroom during the impeachment. They're there's all a, slipping out there to check. There's a back there, and there's like a bootlegger yeah, guy. They're all che- going back there to check their phones yeah. and drink some stuff. It's pretty funny. They're pulling out their little ankle flask to, uh, you know, their boot flask, whatever. So... I yeah, so I my main question I, I I think it's delightful. If I were him, I'd want a glass of chocolate milk too. But my big question is, how did he get BYU Creamery chocolate milk in Washington D.C.? Do they sell it at the Barlow Center? Is it something that one of his aides like flew over on a nonstop flight in a chest filled with dry ice so that <laughs> stay fresh? Like I just don't understand where this bottle of milk came from and how it was still good. I don't know either. That's the main thing I was wondering too. How, where, yeah, where? The Barlow Center is the only way I can think of. A quick Google search of BYU Creamery Barlow Center yields nothing. In fact, you know how Google, um, when you do search results, it has missing and or must include. Mm-hmm. All those results are missing creamery, you know? So like the must, if I must include creamery, it doesn't give me anything. It gives me the Wikipedia article for list of BYU buildings. All right, this so is I the, don't know how this is happening. This is the most important call for participation from our listeners that I think has ever gone out on the show. Those of you who attended or are currently attending the Barlow Center, can you confirm or deny by any certain means that BYU Creamery products are available at the Barlow Center? We need well, even, to know. Even McKay Coppins doesn't know. He tweeted about it. Some people said that it got smuggled in through Washington Seminar, which could have, you know, been. I don't know. But it's again, like, how, but but who who took milk across the United States on Washington Seminar? I don't know. Yeah, it boggles me. And that I again, mean, Mitt, Mitt has the money, maybe from his private coffers. He's paying the the creamery to cold pack a bunch of stuff and send it to DC. Maybe he's just paying out of pocket for a special shipment for himself. His own private bootleg. 
I appreciate that Mitt Romney, unless this is just pandering to his own constituents, but I appreciate that Mitt Romney loves BYU chocolate milk, which is very good. BYU's creamery chocolate milk is, uh, it's not just like a nice thing to have because you're, because it's there in Provo. It's legit good it's chocolate wonderful. milk. Yeah, it's good chocolate yeah, milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like to think that despite his, the seems most of his life not being in Utah, he might be a senator from Utah now, but he spent more of his adult life in the East Coast, uh, but that the BYU creamery chocolate milk has been a, a, a special love for him. And Anne sort of hinted at that. She said it's sort of his vice. So he's clearly loved it since they got married way back in the day when he was a student there. Well, I think the bar has been raised and a, and a standard now is expected of uh, senators from Idaho. I would like to see you match Mitt Romney's um, devotion to his constituents. I would like to see Idaho senators br- smuggle in Reed's dairy chocolate milk to the Senate floor. And those of you who know are, are from or have, are familiar with Idaho Falls and its surrounding areas, you know what I'm talking about. Reed's Dairy, chocolate milk. So I have good. no idea what you're talking about. That sounds made up. This what is Idaho a, Falls? What's the, what's what, the, what is that? What's the, what's the podcast equivalent of a subtweet? That's what I just did. I don't know, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm good for it. All I know is when I said Reed's Dairy, there were a, probably at least a dozen of your listeners who pumped their fists in the air and said, yes. Yes. It's fair. It's like the dairy godmother out here. Right. Exactly. Right. Except better. Sorry, dairy godmother. I dairy love godmother, you, but huh? Reed's Dairy. So good. So good. I want to give a special shout out to Spelunkers and Front Royal since we're talking about Virginia, everybody. If you want some good custard, go out there. Yeah. That's right. There you go. Conflict of interest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mitt needs to Mitt, come on the show and tell us what's going on. I want so as we're winding down here, Jared. I thought we could have an interesting discussion, hopefully, uh, about the Super Bowl, more specifically the halftime show. Now, mm-hmm. um, many people watched it. We liked the football. I think a lot of the times, as Latter Day Saints, especially people who have faith and are BYU fans, of course, you know those with true testimonies. And if you watched the show last night, famously Shakira and Jennifer Lopez performed together. Most of the media covering it said it was a great. Super Bowl halftime show because you know, these can be divisive, you know, not just because of the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake stuff from 15 years ago, mm. but sometimes the shows are just lame, right? Right. Just don't good. So this, everyone said this was solid, great stuff. This is the media coverage. However, in some Latter Day Saint Christian circles, I've seen an interesting backlash here a day later uh, about the halftime show. In that Shakira and specifically J Lo were two perhaps overtly sexual or suggestive in their dancing. And I saw a lot of a lot of pieces of like, oh man, I took my kids out of the room. Um, you know, I don't want my daughters thinking of them as role models. And I appreciate different perspectives here because some could say, hey, these are you know strong women being strong women doing their craft, and that's an awesome thing. Um, so I've seen a lot of this, and it's I guess I don't know if I've fallen spiritually, Jared, in that. If I see a halftime show like that, I just say like, yeah, okay, well, they're just that Shakira is Shakiraing, you know, that's what I expect from the <laughs> right? Shakira brand. So her hips don't lie, after all. They don't. They don't. Um, so I don't think much about it, but I w- the one thing I did think of though is I wondered. I don't think that they were necessarily the two of them representing all of Latino culture per se, right? But I do think that you know a lot of dance traditions that we have we might think of them as sexual in nature, but they're not necessarily sexual in nature uh, 
in the land of their derivation, right? right. They so might, is this a, they, it's just a problem of uh, ethnocentricity or, yeah. It could be. I mean, heck, we even look back at like what was even appropriate in the United States. And that's not to say we haven't just fallen. And uh, I mean, you know, Elvis couldn't be on television in the 50s. Barbara the Eden's way belly button hips. couldn't make an appearance on I Dream of Genie. So, yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that was uh, was totally taboo. And perhaps that was the better time. And we should be taboo about those things. I'm not sure. But it's important to remember that a lot of these dances, I mean, there are a lot of, um, especially in Africa, and I hate to paint with a broad brush, Africa per se, right? But mm. in, in a lot of regions in Africa and a lot of the cultural there, there's women who the form of dancing they have has stuff that would air closely on the side of just, you know, good booty shaking, twerking, things along those lines, right? And we think of twerking, we think of Miley Cyrus making a fool of herself a number of years ago, <laughs> but that could be considered perfectly normal in another country. Um, so I just, that's the one of the, the I guess the one of the main things I thought about. I know that they're not there like representing the culture of Latin America. And so no one should question any of it. I think it's all kind of wrapped up. Well, and I and think there's, there's a lot of components there that are on display. But yeah. And I think that's a really important perspective to keep. Again, this idea of like, well, there are different cultures who don't uh, define or objectify sexuality or sexual sexually suggestive, what we would think of as sexually subjective emotions uh, the same way that we would. I think another side of it too is that, and I, I think when we cry foul, when we see things like that, when we, uh, by our voice and actions, declare something to be scandalous, we make it more scandalous. You know, it's sort mm -hmm. of a, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that scientific principle that by obser observing event, we, by nature of, just by the motion, the action of observing, we change, we change the event. And I think that's what's happening here is that people are saying, oh my gosh, this is scandalous. This, this is inappropriate. And this is terrible. And when you draw such negative attention in such a way to it, you make it more so than it was already. For sure. And I, and I see this a lot. This is something I think that's kind of endemic to social media is that people like to draw attention to things that upset them, which has always confused me. Like, if you don't like it, why are you pointing it out to people and giving it more press? Because the impeachment stuff upsets me, Jared, okay? I hear what you're doing. <laughs> this, okay? goes, this, goes well, this goes well before the Trump administration. I, I just, yeah, so... I uh, yeah I just I think that if if you don't like what happened at the the Super Bowl halftime show maybe that's a good conversation to have with your children or your family or your spouse or whatever but to boldly declare for one and all to hear and read you know we, this was terrible it's funny cuz Kelsey and I we, we didn't watch the Super Bowl I, I didn't have a I'll watch it if there's a a team that I feel like I have some investment in and there wasn't this time around so we didn't watch but we, I was, I had read so much online about like, all these reactions, and then I told Kelsey about it, and she said, "Oh, well, let's watch it." <laughs> we wouldn't have even watched this show if people hadn't like drawn so much attention to it, and we ended up watching it, you know, and and beholding this thing that was declared to be so scandalous, which we otherwise would have been blissfully unaware of. Uh, so I don't know exactly. I, I mean, people claimed that Jayla was like pole dancing because there was a pole. I could see that being the case, but. Right. Nothing I saw there was the definition of pole dancing in the no. stripper's sense. No, and that's that's exactly like people were because the pole came out and she slid down it in a, what they thought was a suggestive way. They were making comparisons to stripping and exotic dancing, and they even you know people were talking about them dressing like prostitutes, etc. I, for one, think it's pretty clear that J Lo is not a prostitute or a stripper. She has declared on the record many times over that her love don't cost a thing. 
And uh, I think we should take her at her word. <laughs> yeah, if we, if sure, I I have no follow up on that. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We could probably end the show there. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we need to talk about? Trust in JLo, everyone. Uh, I would want to call direction real quick to an article by our buddy Jeff Borders who put up on the show. Uh, we won't devote time to it this week, but he's a convert and he has a call, his column called The Convert Files, chronicling just sort of his thoughts from his time in our church from uh, with the perspective of a convert uh, who converted like in his late teens. Um, but this is an interesting one that actually got a lot of play. He says, are we missing great praise music? So he grew up in a more evangelical household mm-hmm. and praise music, something we don't throw around much as Latter-day Saints, was very much a thing. And so he's just saying, like, what's the deal with, like, praise music? Like, should we try to embrace some aspect of this? Is there anything wrong with us embracing that as Latter-day Saints? And he's, and and he's next- sure to point out that he's not advocating for, like, guitars and basses and drums and yeah. sacrament meeting. He says he understands there's a, a time and a place, but he kind of, yeah, I, but he's like saying, yeah, maybe outside of that, that it would, there needs to be some more stirring praise type style music and I, I mean i hear some stuff that's uh, you know when i've you know like accidentally turned on christian radio or something and um it's fine like i hear some of the songs that are no different than some half the stuff you hear on the efy soundtrack nowadays that's exactly what not I as i was reading his church. article my main thought was i think the closest thing we have to what he's talking about is efy music but i haven't i, I haven't listened to an efy soundtrack since <laughs> since i was an efy counselor look uh yeah, so I think the last soundtrack I listened to in its entirety was in 2002, which is We Believe. And even then, I feel like the, the music was getting more tame and less poppy. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if we oh, still it's like have... All, it's like all EDM now. It's crazy. <laughs> it's all Skrillex-inspired. <laughs> they get... I forgot. I'm blanking on his name. It's all Cascade. Cascade well, brings us the EFY. It's all M- LMFAO. <laughs> uh you have no idea how much I hate LMFAO. I, I probably have an idea. It's it's such a thing that my brother had the DJ play it at my wedding. Because, <laughs> oh, like, that's awful. Me. That's your day. Yeah. I didn't care. He, he started playing. He looked over at me and gave me a wink. And I said, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Anywho. I, I, I think that is interesting. I think that's worth dis- uh, discussing. You, you should, people should go to the blog and, and put stuff in the comments or go to the Facebook page. There's always a lively comment section over there too. I would love to hear other people's perspective on this. I have some thoughts. A lot of people are very against it. And I'm mostly curious because we're getting a new hymn book. I still expect it to be hymns, but I have seen that more recent um, creations that have been incorporated as hymns perhaps, or hymn adjacent, like faith in every footstep, something like that, um, inherently seem to follow a bit, bit more of a popular music structure and tone than the hymns of old. Sure. So I don't think we're going to go full praise music, but I do wonder if the next hymn book is going to be a little bit more contemporary. Yeah, I, I'm super interested in that. Actually, I recently learned that someone I know is actually working on the new hymn book, that they are an editor working on this hymn book. Will that and person be willing to speak to us? No. If I, I mask He won't even voice? tell his wife anything about what's going in or not going into that hymn book. He what has said I that it's going to be a while. It'll be it'll be a while yet before we see the hymn book uh, publicly released. And I think we are. What if I that. make promises? I'll make promises. I'll, I'll obscure his voice. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't think he's going to go for it. But yeah, that, so I'm super interested. Like he, finding out that this uh, this person I know was working on it just made me like that much more curious because, I was yeah, like, oh, sure. I know somebody and he won't tell me anything. It's it's tantalizing. Uh. 
Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, your friend stinks, but yeah, that's cool. (laughs) I'll pass that on. Thank you very much. Folks, we hope you have enjoyed the show this week. Please go to thisweekinmormons.com. Send us the email, like we said before. Let us know how we're doing. We love your thoughts on these matters. It's fun not to just talk into the ether, but to actually hear what you think about these issues. That's contact at thisweekinmormons.com. If you've yet to become a patron on Patreon, you should be one because you will be happy. And because it's 2020 and it's an all-new tax year and because your contributions to Patreon are in no way tax deductible. So I want you to remember that. It's just... It's just straight money. Um, but anyways, it's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash This Week in Mormons. I know it sounds like I'm begging every week, but just a dollar a month would be great just to help us pay for our various servers and hosting and all that blah, blah, blah. Um, that's all we're looking for. This isn't like a, I'm not not paying a mortgage from this or anything, folks. Lining Sorry. his pockets, finishing his basement with your Patreon money. Sweet, sacred twim dollars. Absolutely. Absolutely. We so need more thank- transparency in the twim budgeting process, is what I say. If I were an incorporated nonprofit, I would have to do that. Unless you were a religious one. Yeah. I should start a church. <laughs> Uh, okay, now we're born now. I think you're starting to edge towards that the uh, handbook definition gonna of apostasy. Twim- we're going to officially incorporate Twim as a church, though we will consider ourselves um, <laughs> in communion with the Salt Lake Church. Yeah, I, I, I would still wait to see what the uh, new handbook has to say about what apostasy is before you uh, take any. Does it say you can't start measures. a church if your church is basically just following the other church and your church is just for tax purposes? That's the only reason it exists. I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to see in two weeks. I'm going to write a letter to my stake president. I bet he'll have some thoughts on this matter. He probably will. Okay. Well, Jared, thanks for being here this week, pal. It's, a, it's it. always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Ah, pleasure's mine. Everyone, have a great week. We hope all your dreams come true and that you choose the right and are blessed for doing so. Until then, we'll speak to you again on another edition of This Week in Mormons. Be well, be holy, and be happy.